Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Amber. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast, your podcast of pulling it all together and having an awesome game. This week, we're having a fringeworthy bring it all together and just kind of summarize what we have been doing for the last, is it three years, Blix? Yes, three years and then some. Okay, because <laughs> actually we're, we're on our third year. And it's been really great. And we have been having just uh, tons and tons of episodes on Fringeworthy. So we know that a lot of people come in a little later. Not everybody has listened to every show. We don't understand why that is because every one of them is golden. Right, John? Yep. We said, okay, you know, we've talked about you know, how to start the game. We've talked about so many things. We just want to pull together and say, all right, this is the way the game should be done and let's just talk about the most important points. Just hit them, let's bang that gong, so you can get basically the overview of it and get pointed to the directions you need to go in order to flesh out anything that you don't have totally down as far as making an awesome, fringe-worthy game. Some other things that we have talked about that help make great adventures, and they're kind of linked because you kind of need one for the other, uh, episode 55, we talked about Super Tech. And episodes 48 and 49 before that, we talked about surviving the virtual world. And obviously, in order to have a virtual world, you're going to need a relatively high level of technology. Now, having Super Tech also, we talked earlier about equipping your character. You could have Super Tech in your campaign that your player characters could have. But if the player characters are going to have it as a matter of, hey, yeah, I've got, you know, this is our equipment. Super tech is like a once in a while type thing. You're not going to want to have the PL6 Fringeworthy campaign and all of a sudden everybody has PL9 technology from the get-go. No. That's a matter of scale again. Super tech, like, let's say you find something on a, on a PL9 post-apocalyptic world. And you have it, you use it, you take it back to IDET, and the boys in R&D go, um, what? We have no idea how to take this apart to look at it. We have no idea how it could work, yet it works. Why don't you hold on to it for a while? It seems to, you seem to know what it does. Having super tech once in a while is fine. Also, super tech as far as a plot device. I mean, the fringe system itself is super tech. In and of itself. A lot of fringe-worthy adventures take place in a super tech type device. A spacecraft, as you say, the fringe paths themselves. One of the 
uh, places that you can go to on the fringe pass is this place that's nothing but tunnels and air blasts and strange chambers full of weird things. Some kind of gigantic breathing, possibly lung machine, planet-wide possibly. Who knows? Being on an asteroid that's firing its way to another galaxy. I mean, these are all super tech-type devices that are things that you use as the MacGuffin or at least, you know, the, the setting almost for your adventure. Do we want to um, talk about how big is big? Well, Fringeworthy, because it is a system that has a million, million worlds on it, it almost creates the onus, the perpetual need to show really amazing things. And we talked about that in the episode, uh, that it's really, really hard to give people an idea of how big the scope of this is, how big the scope of the fringe path is, how big it is to go and explore a world, how big it is to deal with an entirely new culture. That episode I thought was excellent. I thought we all did a really good job on that as far as bringing across concepts of scale that people normally don't even think about. Not just the big, but also the tiny. Mm -hmm. Because we were talking about nanotechnology. We were talking about senses of scale where when you devise devices that operate at nanotech levels, tiny machines, well, you know, how do they get from one place to another? Because what to you is is, is a trivial distance of 10 feet to something that's only a plank constant wide, it would take the rest of time to reach that distance from one to another. So just right. things like that that have to do with scale that that really can open up your eyes and and create opportunities for really interesting adventures. A, a big part of that was touching on scale of adventure. Like when you say how big is your adventure, it's not just you know um, how big of a space or a size of something, but but how involved is it? So. Are you going on adventures that affect uh, a small town in your neighborhood? Are you going on adventures that affect the entire time stream and multiple universes? And how does that fit with the players, the player style? Right. So when you're designing your fringeworthy adventure and you've got these interesting characters and stuff, how big are you going to take them on their adventures? How big are you going to let their role in the entire universe take? And how big are the players prepared to deal with? Say you got a bunch of brand new players, you know, you're not going to want to go multidimensional wide with the effects of everything that they do because they're just generally not going to be ready for something like that. And they probably don't want the responsibility of that either. Right. But if you create larger than life characters, you need larger than life adventures. That's true. If these larger than life characters, if you have the Iraqi cab driver and the soccer mom who, you know, took some kickboxing classes and you have the veterinarian that, you know, also was going to be an engineer and you have these characters and they are unique. They are the ones that, because of this fringeworthy quality, they didn't sit, they, they, they gave up a normal life. They are larger than life by the fact that they are fringeworthy on their world. They are considered celebrities. So, they're already in a larger-than-life... They're, they're in something that's beyond anything they, these characters could imagine. Now, they're still going to start small. You're going to... Because they're relatively inexperienced, you're not going to throw them into the 
commonwealth size adventures. You're going to stick them on, okay, we need to explore this town that's outside this one portal, your first world that you're going to. You're going to give them the smaller adventures and give them, increase their scale a little bit more as the characters get more experienced as time goes on. You might go after six months of adventuring, that same party now might be in charge of, oh, three nodes. That is your patrol area. That's plenty of worlds and plenty of locales within each world for you to deal with. It's a decent enough scale. They've got some adventuring time experience under their belts. They've learned some things. And then after a while, it might go from those three nodes to, oh, five nodes. And as time goes on, these characters get more and more experience. They're going to start their their um, adventures and the the consequences of their actions are going to ripple out among the fringe paths. Not only as far as reputation, but the, the event, the things that they do themselves will ripple and, you know, they might attract fringe pirates or fringe walking cultures that have heard of these guys. Hey, they're adventuring on these three or four nodes and they're starting to make a name for themselves. So scale, you, you still need to start small. Even if they're experienced players, you're going to have you know, unless you start the campaign at a high level to begin with, you're still going to have these low-level characters and throwing them, these little fish, into a huge ocean, they're not going to be able to survive. You throw a, a little goldfish in the ocean, they're not going to survive very long. So you need to start them small. That's why you have the goldfish and you start out in a little bowl and then put it into a bigger aquarium later when it's used to it. That's just a matter of just good game mastering. If you're not, if you're going to throw your little characters into something big, that's usually a good way to end up in a TPK and a lot of angry players. So scale is important in a camp in any French-worthy campaign because of the potential massive scope of French-worthy and what you can conceivably do with this game. If you give them three nodes to work with. That's actually 264 portals for them to explore, which can be an awful lot of different experiences, considering everyone can be to a world that's radically different from each other. Oh, yes, yes. The adventure that they have on one world might not be that challenging, but that's the one that they have access to because it was held, it was secured by a low-level crystal. But the world is full of Mellor that have giant death robots. Well, that's something that you might want to get to a little later on in your campaign. Yeah. More toward the 200 of the portals. <laughs> one thing I've been doing in, uh, with, with my uh, playtest campaign right now is that they're building... Bonds. They're building, you know, bridges. Uh, both ident teams have gone to Victorian Earth. Team one, which is all NPCs, have been dealing with the Crown. But, the, but team two got to go and uh, visit various people, including uh, some people who shouldn't be there, like Sherlock Holmes. You know, and but they're building relationships. They're building, you know, okay, we're building foundations that we can come back here and we got people we know, and we may we may want to come back here because this is a fascinating world. They've traveled a thousand miles on this world so far, and they're going to choose more traveling in the future. And it's like, 
it's a big world, and we've only scratched the surface. You literally could have, you could have a fringe worthy campaign where you only have gone to one world, and you'll take an entire year to do it. I mean, that's entirely possible if you if your world's rich enough. I've done it twice, and I won't do it again for a while. That is, I I, I try shy shy away from saving the world adventures because they get boring after a while. Oh dear, we saved the world again! Hooray! Uh, uh, in this case, they saved they saved Queen yeah. Victoria twice now. So, <laughs> you know, it's a more fun adventure saving yourself from yourself. If a character has good flaws mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, those kind of things can play, can really play in dealing with temptation and dealing with corruption from within and from without can be really interesting adventures. Like you're, I agree with you, John. Saving the world all the time gets boring. It, it really does. Saving the world once in a great while is kind of exciting. Try being Doctor Who. Yeah, I agree that you know all of your adventures should not be about saving the world. That's why you know we have many different podcasts about different things that you can mm-hmm. be doing. For example, you know we have uh, episode thirty and, and thirty and a half were about plots that worked. One episode, the various story ideas we had for adventures that really seemed to work with the players. Episode eleven, we talked about dinosaurs. All kinds of things you can do with dinosaurs. Everything from tame them to prevent them from overrunning the local village to taking them and repopulating them back to Earth. Pirates. Pirates can fall into all kinds of different things. Dealing with strange and unusual religions or just ones that you know of, but they've gone a different way. Or just you know important events in history, they might turn out to be a little different than you expected. Some of the adventures can take place in the near future, okay, or they can take far take place far in the past. The same adventure, the same plot elements set in a different setting can radically change what the adventure is about and how it's going to be dealt with, especially if the culture that they're in is different. The way the Japanese look at certain uh, certain plot things, certain goals, uh, certain threats are going to be completely different than, let's say, someone who's French or even English. If you were somebody from America and you heard about a threat to the royal crown, it'd be like, oh, big deal. We're, you know, we believe in democracy. Getting rid of the crown might be a good idea, while someone who grew up with the tradition that there always must be a king in your country, you're willing to lay down and die for that person. Different worlds are going to have different kinds of reactions to different things. And so you need to bring that in and and make that real to the players so that they can jump on board and, and want to support the locals in whatever situation they have. Yeah, I can see that this is this is now falling under uh, what what was done in episode five, managing your campaign. You need that hook. Let's say the princess of this monarch is fringeworthy, and you would like to develop relations with this world. So keeping the king in power might be in your best interest, because if right. the king is deposed there's a good chance you're going to lose that friendworthy because if the king goes, they're probably going to take the princess out with them. Right. And you may be a stalwart supporter of democracy and not like things like kings and stuff like that, but if this king is deposed, 
maybe the government that will replace him won't be a democracy. It could be the most vile totalitarian regime. So you might end up propping up the crown to keep that other thing from happening that would be so much worse. What's Yeah, the evil you know against the evil you don't know, the lesser of the two evils. And yeah. not everybody's ready to force self-rule. We've seen that in our own century. I mean, going on in the world right now, we have situations where people are desperately trying to prop up governments that are just not ready to stand on their own. What about warfare? You walk into this new world, and there are two possibly more factions factions at war with each other, you're most likely going to ally yourself with the first one that you encounter if they manage to persuade you that what they're fighting for is the right side to fight for. But yeah. what if you learn later that they're the ones that started it, they're the ones starting all the issues? It, do you just change loyalties? You have how much time working with them, helping them under the assumption that they were in the right? Now, you may not even have that choice, Amber. You come through, you see a bunch of guys attacking a bunch of guys. You may, out of, out of reaction, go to their defense. And by doing that, the other side now assumes that you're their allies. They're not going to listen to you and say, oh, no, no, really, we just happened by and decided to get involved. No, nobody does that. You're with them. You've always been with them. You're our enemies now. We hate you to the rest of time. And, of course, it can get worse because your side feels the exact same way. Oh, you're, you, you, who are you? We don't know who you are. And so both sides are now after you. You may find out after the initial encounter that you're on the wrong side. And how do you get out of that? I think that's a great plot. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be right on the battlefield. You show up, you meet the natives, they encourage you to join their side... And then you learn later, these aren't the people we want to be out with. These people are murdering babies or something. Well, a lot of people have big problems with Pax Romana because they are stalwart supporters of slavery. It's part of their culture. They believe it's the right way to deal with foreigners. Cultures that believe in slavery, they're more likely to treat captured and defeated enemies better than cultures that don't believe in slavery, especially primitive cultures, because they're just going to see them as threats that need to be dealt with, and they'll kill them off. I mean, we've seen scorched earth policies by one culture against another. But cultures that believe in slavery would say, well, you're valuable. I'm not going to destroy you. You're, you know, you're worth something to me. And if that culture also allows a slave to earn its freedom or buy its freedom in some fashion, that might actually be a more benign culture. Again, I'm speaking very generally here, nothing specific. Okay, then a, another culture that was directly opposed to ever having something like slavery in it. And we actually had a discussion in the for, in, in the Yahoo group one time, and I had one of the. Uh, uh, had the the Rome the Pax Romana ambassador pretty much say, "You want us to get rid of slavery? Fine, you get rid of it first, because there's still slavery going on in our world too. <laughs> you know, if you want us to get rid of slavery, you get rid of slavery. Good luck with that." Those of us modern day Americans, if we're on Pax Romana, we're going to be like, "What are you talking about?" I mean, because in our culture, as we generally see it. We don't have slavery. I mean, there are parts of our planet that still have slavery, 
But here in America, we'd be insulted. Be like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? We're, we don't... Oh, there's slavery in the United States. Just that it's, it's, it's a lot more covert. It's illegal. It's illegal, yeah. But we're talking about white slavery and, and things like that. There's other ways of looking at it. You know, some people might view our society today as slavery as, as we did, you know, of the society of the 1300s of serfdom. You know, we saw them as slaves. Um, they might see us as slaves, you know, a future culture, you know, Star Trek, Star Trek culture. You know, they might say, well, you're not free to do whatever it is you want. I mean, you, you got to go to work every day and like you have to go to work. You're working at jobs you hate. Right. That's slavery. It's got to be. It's like, why do you think you wear that thing called a collar and that thing around your neck called the tie that looks a lot like a leash? It's white collar slavery. You know, I mean, that's just that's just all conceptual stuff. You know, it, it's just a matter of perspective. No, of course, we, we haven't really talked about running into a, uh, a Mesoamerican uh, civilization. Now, there is one that will get people up and standing, you know, when they're busy su- sacrificing a thousand people in one day to their gods, you know, cut, by cutting the hearts out. And they consider themselves to be a very enlightened culture as well. Yeah. Even the, the Mayans, we, we, we used to think we're pacifists. No, they're just as bloody as the rest of them. But they also were a bit more into self-mutilation as well. You know, women would run, uh, would pull uh, links of twine with thorns in them through their tongue. They'd get blood, and the guys would use, uh, well, let's say the guys did something that was very painful. Uh, 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 yeah, okay, John. <laughs> So there are so many different ways of bringing in unusual and stimulating aspects into your adventures. So going down our list, where were we? We're big as big, compensate. Do we do compensation yet? We haven't done compensation. No, we, we haven't talked about compensation. That's both a character development and an adventure design. Mm-hmm. Because the, the main point we made in that is that characters should be rewarded for a good role playing and b achieving their goals in which they should have so the gm should think about things that they should be putting into their games to reward the player and also the player's character for participation and for successfully playing their characters and and the big part of that is it's the first part uh, of knowing what it is your players want as compensation. Some people play characters that want money and magic items. And some people play characters that don't want any of that. They want a sense of accomplishment. They want the adventure to mean something to the character. Of course, there's all levels in between. You know, some characters, they want money and they want that. But, you know, neither one is any more important than the other. Some people want fame. Right, some people... Right, exactly. Some people want fame. Maybe they want their character to... You know, get with the ladies. Maybe that would that makes maybe that makes the player happy that his character managed to have more intimate relations than any of the other characters. You know, whatever it is, and that can stem from the character that you make and how rich you make your character. There's also um, a D and D game I believe called Hollow Earth, where they can actually reward player characters tokens that they can use to adjust things that they do in the game. Like, you can spend token that you've earned to alter a role or to add extra influence to a certain characteristic. There are many games that have different things that you can use to modify the game. If the players, and especially the GM, is okay with the players 
doing things to change the things that he normally or possibly traditionally would have had control over, it allows the characters to be more spontaneous because they know that their spontaneity will be immediately rewarded. It will be immediately cause a change to the game world. As long as they're mature and not wreck the game, this can be the most awesome game they've ever played. It's something that has to do with the game style of, of the players and the GMs. Because if you have GMs that just, you know, it's it's not on rails, but it might as well be. You know, well, I'm not sure that's a good adventure anyways. But the point is, is that some GMs just can't allow that loss of control. And, and, and you can't do that. But uh, for those who will... I, I think all these ideas are great. I, I'm constantly asking my players to add more interesting things to their backstory. Tell me about what they did when they weren't on the mission to, so I could use those ideas to make things happen in the mission to echo, you know, to be a, a shadow of what, they, of what they were already talking about or to bring things when they come back to add complications that would be playing off of all that stuff. So... Yeah, it's great. Tokens are great because it gives people permission to be creative. As, as far as a GM losing control, I don't necessarily think that's true. Because if the GM knows that these tokens or reward points or style points are going to give the players an ability to alter something that they normally couldn't do or didn't do well enough, it brings a uniqueness into the game, but that GM knows that these points are going to be used for these reasons. So they still have that control knowing what they are handing out to their players. Uh, it's usually more of a fear of loss of control, Amber, than it's actual loss of control. Because, I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, you're the GM. You know, no matter what anybody does, you can always just say, oh, well, that as well as that was, we're back on track. <laughs> <laughs> the GM is the world. The GM is the reality in which you play. Yeah, you, you. The whole concept of role-playing, whatever game it is, it's collaborative storytelling. The game master and the players are all getting together to tell a story. And you don't want it to become an adversarial relationship. So these concept of style points or action points or plot points or whatever you want to call them, depending on the system and the game itself, there are a way that the players can help shape the world further. As I said, in the Trinity Universe D20, they have inspiration points. The game, the specifically the the game Adventure D20, was a pulp era game, and you use these inspiration points to do things called dramatic. Editing. Let's say you're trapped in a room. All that's in that room is a chest. You're in like a cell. Well, I want to use a dramatic editing point to say that there's a crowbar in that chest. Well, the game master didn't say that there wasn't a crowbar. Therefore, the player is using one of these points that he'll gain back after a while, probably before the next scenario, to help alter the game environment to help move the story along and make a richer story. Well, he just happened to find out that there was this crowbar in there and he managed to, you know, get his way out of the cell and go back after the bad guys after being captured. So, yeah, that first and foremost, role-playing is collaborative storytelling. That's what I tell my mundane friends. They, what is role-playing exactly? And that the two words that come to mind. So if the players and the game master, it's like a verbal contract. You are all together... 
in an unspoken contract to help make a grand story. And if you have things that help the players facilitate that end better, so much the better. Call them what you will. Action points, drama points, style points, whatever. So if, if that's a tool that the Game Master is willing to let the players have access to and use, fine. But the Game Master is, he still has the power of, um, no. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, there's a crowbar in the chest. All right, but the noise that you make opening the door, guess who you just woke up? Right, exactly. Yeah, there's still going to be, well, I mean, if you're going to be sitting there and every time you give the player an option for an out, you still screw them, that's going to lead to that adversary relationship that you don't want with your players. True. You don't want to do that all the time. That's that's just, yeah, that that's a good way to lose that player group cohesion. Because after a while, the players are just going to stop coming. They'll just be like, you know what, every time he gives us an out, there's always strings attached. But there always should be another challenge following the first challenge. That's part of all good game design. The GM should not use this as a reason to punish the players. We're talking; these are all designed to reward the players, not to not to punish. Yeah, because after a while, it's going to be like uh, Charlie Brown losing the football. Yeah. Every time you go for it, yeah, it gets yanked away. You end up flat on your back, going out. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to do that. I mean, no. Once in a while is a nice twist. Oh yeah, it keeps the players on their toes. After a while, yeah, it gets real old real quick. Hey, you know what? That kind of leads into our, our next one. Um, uh, plots that worked. Okay. Did a whole show on plots that worked. What do you think the, uh, the, the big message out of that one was? Well, we were just basically talking about the advent- our, what we considered our best adventures and why we thought they worked. I think the biggest message was is that the best adventures were ones that, A, had a big enough scope that the players actually felt that they were in an awesome situation. Secondly, that they played to the characters' strengths so that the, everybody had something to do. And they had a resolution to them that was satisfying to everybody. I think those were the biggest three points that we talked about, but there were lots and lots of examples of different things that people had really, really liked, and they were none alike. None of these adventures were anywhere near similar, but they had elements that were the same that I just mentioned. You know, that ties up a whole lot of the stuff that we're doing, so like plots that worked. That's tying a lot of this together. Like you got the how big is big correct. You got the uh, the big bad correct. Uh, you made great adventures. You mix the, the tech properly. Made memorable NPC, uh, PCs and NPCs. Plots at work, that has a lot to do with putting it all together. Right. Everything kind of played in at the same time. Because if you honestly, if you bugger one of those up, you're basically not going to have a plot that worked. The whole plots that work, we basically just told war stories. But it's something that's worth listening to. One of the main points of this whole episode is to say these are all your resources go to them and and use them for your benefit we've done these podcasts and we still do them today to help you bring the awesome to your game and we have gone on all these different tangents and covered all these different subjects to give as many seeds for you to germinate and block campaign into something that is just fantastic 
that will be talked about for decades. You know, we detail that process and what happened during those adventures so that, you know, you can get an idea of how to make that happen with your group and, and how to listen to your group and how to – because there is a synergy. You know, it's, no one person is playing this game by themselves. You know, it's a symbiotic kind of thing. It's, it's communal storytelling like Trav said. Right. All the players have to be happy and the game master has to be happy. And I think this is a good time to point out that the game master is a player too. You know, we keep talking about the players and the game master and that's kind of unfair because the game master is a player too. He has to get some enjoyment out of the game as well. It's it's not a job for him to do. You know, it's not his job to entertain you and make you happy. Whoever chooses the mantle of game master does it for his own reasons, you know, and, and he enjoys the role that he plays. But at the same time, you know, don't ever forget that it's your job to help him have fun too. You know, just as much as it is his job to have you help you have fun. So, you know, when you come to the table, you're not there as a receptacle for him to provide you entertainment. It's a communal thing. When you come to the table, you should be prepared to entertain him as well. Figure out what it is the game master likes that your that you can do as a character to help entertain him and the rest of the players as well. And honestly, it'll be its own reward because I can tell you I have done some game mastering. I'm not, I'm not that's not my main thing. I generally am a player, but I've done some game mastering. And I generally reward the players that entertain me the most with giving them some edge and leeway. You know, if somebody comes to my table and provides some of the story for me, helps me tell that story with their interesting character, I generally play into them and let them do whatever the hell it is they want to do. You know, I give them a lot of leeway. I don't give them a hard time. If you come to the table and you've thought all this stuff out and you want to do all this stuff with your character and you're going to bring all this interesting information to everyone else in entertainment, I'm going to let you do it. Unlike the other players who just show up and, oh, I want to get this gun. Okay, no. You know what I mean? It's it's how are you going to get that gun? What is this gun? What, what is your character? What is he doing? What is his motivation? You know, the guy that shows up who has that motivation, has an interesting character, comes to the, the table with with a plot line and says, well, I'm going to character's going to do this and this and this. I'm going to talk to these people. You know, he makes up some NPCs for me. You know, I met this guy and he does this. You know, as long as it's, you know, it's not overpowering anything and, we, you know, we're on, a, on the same plate with this. Yeah. I mean, we've talked before about making sure that all the different players have spotlight time. But I'm telling you, the player that comes to the table and he's ready to invest into the game and into the plots that you're trying to do as the GM, he's going to get a lot more spotlight time than other people because he's helping the game. Oh, yeah. In the campaign that I run at local conventions now, my girlfriend Laura plays basically an airship swashbuckler. And I set out in the Facebook group I have. Okay, what do you guys all want to do with your characters? She came up with an insurance company for Aether ships. If and and set it up where you know you make a policy and if your Aether ship is destroyed in the course of adventuring, you know, you get money back another Aether ship. And I found the mechanics for it and everything. And this is just something more pulled out of the out of just thin air. We were talking. And, oh, yeah, it's, and, and the rest of the players are just looking at her are like, are you serious? You're doing this. And she explained it. And as I said, I found the mechanic where it can be done, and her character now already is making some decent bank. And all she, all she was was an airship pirate. Now she's an entrepreneur. Well, you know, one of the things that we're doing, we're using Obsidian Portal. On Obsidian Portal, you can create NPCs and stuff. 
And the Game Master has given us leeway to make up NPCs that we interact with. So if I want to introduce an NPC, I can just make one up. And then I can spell out what they do. And everything, of course, is always with the Game Master approval. But so far, the way we've been working it, it hasn't been a problem with anything that we want to do. And then for every adventure episode, you get rewarded for writing a log file of the adventure that you that we just did. So, you know, we play a game Friday night. Uh, by the next Friday night, if I write an adventure log, I get bonuses for that. If I then write adventure logs for other NPCs that are going on the adventure, or, or even if they are not have nothing to do with the adventure we did, I just write something that while we were doing this, that person was doing that, I get extra points for that as well. So he rewards us for developing the richness of the world because that makes his job easier. And in a way, at the same time, he is kind of a player too because he's allowing us to do a little bit of the DMing for him. Right. That was part of our uh, episode on compensation. If you want, as you the GM, if you want your players to do something, you've got to reward them for it. Unless they already have motivation to do it anyways, you've got to you know, push them in that direction by providing them with some kind of carrot. And the better you reward them, the more likely it is that they'll do it again. So this Obsidian Portal uh, sounds like a great place. And uh, I think that everybody who's uh, starting a new Friendsworthy campaign should probably check it out. Because it could be a great resource and, and a means of helping to run your campaign. Yeah, I'm using it right now for the uh, playtest campaign. That's where, unfortunately, I only have one log from the very first adventure, but uh, hopefully we'll get we'll get that caught up one of these days. <laughs> but yeah, we do have all the player characters and and the main NPCs. Well, most of the main NPCs, um, the there. So, and also I do list various uh, vehicles and so forth. I, I, so they have places to put things. Obsidian Portal has a place for doing maps and. It's okay, but uh, I use another, uh, another online to- tool called View, and that's spelled V-Y-E-W dot com. It's like a presentation whiteboard. Uh, you use the set pages and so forth. So I use it for putting pictures up. Uh, this last one, I actually had a game map, and when I had little icons to move, so folks to move around and, and do things. Uh, did run into a few bugs, which we're trying to troubleshoot because they're still working on View, but it's a uh, it's a great little, you know, for doing Skype games, it's great. Uh, I just actually heard from another person on Google Plus that they're coming up with, with another map tool that will work through the Google Plus Hangouts. So I'm going to see how that comes, how that works when it comes available. We're actually going to be a different play group I'm playing with may actually test it this Sunday. And we'll see how it goes. So there are online people who want to play games with you online, and we're getting better tools now. So people can play online, uh, role-playing games, real real ones, not the not the fake ones. It's called video games, where you can actually talk to people and and actually have an adventure and, and be able. If those those of you who like to do maps like me, you can you can do maps and you know and and have the people move thing you know move the characters around. So this is something to look forward to as technology gets better. You know, sometime in the future we'll be able to put, plug in our brains and go to a virtual role-playing thing where you are playing that character. So yes, you can play that halfling and view the world as a halfling. But that's many years, many, many years in the future. <laughs> yeah. It's the theater of the mind now. 
We want to thank everybody for listening to us, and we hope that we've been able to pull it all together for you and, and let you know that it is possible to create awesome and amazing Fringeworthy campaigns and that you have huge amount of resources in our podcast, uh, especially our uh, elder episodes and the other resources that are out there, such as Obsidian Portal and other things. Please, you know, start a campaign. Please create an awesome game for yourself. You know, create awesome characters. And please let us know that you've done this because we want to learn all about the great things that you've done with the Fringeworthy game and promote it on our podcast and let everyone know what you know that you with us love this game. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna have more for you next week. But until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.